0: Hello, and welcome to KRUI. It is time for your weekly, History Overlooked. And this week, we are looking at two stories that involve the U.S. military and war. And one of these is pretty well known. I'm sure if you're over 40, 50, you probably know about this. The other is much, much less known. But coming from the, recently, from the U.S. school system, I didn't learn about either of these. So when I was thinking about topics to do, when I remembered learning about one of these stories, it immediately sparked interest. I wondered if there were any other stories like this. And because I didn't learn about this until I took a psychology class in college, I thought maybe some other people might not know about it either. So the first story is of the My Lai Massacre. And the My Lai Massacre occurred in Vietnam during 1968. And it started with... I mean, it just occurred during the Vietnam War. So the Vietnam War, U.S. involvement began in 1954, but there had been conflict in that region for decades. And this started when Ho Chi Minh became dictator. He made himself dictator in northern Vietnam and created a system of communism. But in the south, with the capital of Saigon, No, Dinh Diem was the leader. So now there's fighting between these two leaders. And Diem referred to people from the north as the Viet Cong, which means Vietnamese communist. So there's division between these essentially two governments. And they're fighting about political systems, economic systems, power, who really has control over Vietnam. So the U.S., Gets fully involved in 1955. And in 1968, on March 16th, this story begins. So, the Charlie Company of the U.S. Army was considered the best company in their battalion. Their average age is 20, most of them are middle income, and they are the main characters of this story so people leaders of the army decide that soldiers of charlie company are going to infiltrate Sun Mi, particularly the village of Mike and milai and this area is often referred to as pinkville by the soldiers so their orders are to fly in helicopters over the village at 7 a.m. And it's a 12-minute ride. And then they're going to land and infiltrate the Sunmi village at 7.30 a.m. And they are told to kill everyone, including women and children, and leave no one alive. But they are assuming that most of the women and children are going to be gone. They've been told that the women and the children, the elderly, are going to the markets at this time, and the only people left are going to be members of the Viet Cong. So everyone who's innocent is supposed to be gone, and all the men the Viet Cong are there, supposedly. And these orders came just after a funeral, that they were given these orders The night before, March 15th, and that same night, there was a funeral for a member of the Charlie Company, and they were given less of, therefore, less than 24 hours to plan for this. They were still grieving for their friend, these soldiers. They didn't really have time to dwell on whether this information could be true, whether there could be consequences, whether there really might be some innocent people left, whether they're actually members for the Viet Cong, they are distracted and they just decide to follow the orders they're given. So, a man we will hear about later named Ron Reidenhauer says later in a letter, exactly what did, in fact, occur in the village of Pinkville in March 1968, I do not know for certain, but I am convinced that it was something very black indeed. And this is true, as you will hear. Although we don't know the exact events either, we have lots of testimonies, and we can kind of piece everything together. So 120 men and five officers stormed the village. They were in different groups. I believe it was a group of 40, 30, 20, 10. And the people in the village are mostly women, children, and elderly men. The men are gone. But the soldiers don't really notice. Their orders are to kill everyone. They don't really take time to stop and look around. And even if they did, they were told that even these people were to be killed. No one could be spared. So they just start killing. And this lasts for four hours. They slaughtered livestock, they raped multiple women before murdering them, and they burned the village to the ground. A man, a soldier who was there, named Vernado Simpson says, I just started killing any kind of way I could kill. And if you look back at accounts, there's a movie also called Remember Milai, and you hear the soldiers talk about what happened, and they are pretty gruesome. And for the next few minutes, I'm going to describe a couple of them, so if that's too much, if it's a trigger for you, just so you know, I'd tune back in in about five minutes. So, Lieutenant Callie, who is the one who gave all of these orders, kind of takes the lead, and he starts dragging dozens of people into a ditch and leaves them all sitting there in a pile before executing them with a machine gun. And another story, actually, is from a, a man, a survivor of the massacre, and this video is from the Associated Press. The translations are only in captions, and it's not a voiceover, so because this is radio, I will read that for you as the video goes. Đó một cái lần À bỗng dưng vào 5:30 của buổi sáng ngày 16 tháng 3 năm 16 tháng 3, họ my nghiệp băng xã vào làng 8 giờ thì họ đến gia đình tôi. Là cô bắt đầu hổ bắn ba con bò trong chuồng nhà tôi và đấu cả nhà trên nhà dưới chuồng bò và hổ dí súng vào với họ bắt sao mà con của gia đình mẹ tôi told us to go into the shelter first tôi she enter later cả us con As soon as my mother got into the shelter, the American soldiers continuously tossed in grenades. The bodies of my mother, my sisters, and brothers were torn into pieces. My youngest sister was cut in half. I got injured and knocked out in the shelter. Not until 4 in the afternoon, when the Americans had left, my father and other, other villagers returned to collect the dead bodies to bury. They found me breathing. When my father picked me up, I was covered in blood with pieces of flesh and hair of my mother, my siblings, all over my body. My clothes were ripped. I got a lot of injuries on my head and body. So that's just one account of a survivor. A quote from a soldier says, we met no resistance, and I only saw three captured weapons. We had no casualties. It was just like any other Vietnamese village. Old Papa sounds men, women, and kids. As a matter of fact, I don't remember seeing one military-age male in the entire place, dead or alive. And that's from a soldier named Bernhardt. So, I mean, you can look at the psychology of this and that's why we did talk about it in my psychology class there's something called moral obedience and basically if you look at it if you from a psychology perspective you really break it down you can start to understand why maybe these soldiers didn't really stop and think about it and just started obeying and because their collective obedience got really really severe then it got became more chaotic because they were in a group and that's why the atrocity was so bad and so traumatic and the damage was so gruesome likely because of the group obedience but you can look more into the psychology of that i'm sure there are papers you can take Social psychology here with Laurie Nelson, (laughs) but only the only soldier documented who refused Lieutenant Callie's direct orders was named Harry Stanley, and in Remember Me, Lie the documentary about this, he explains that he was told to murder this group of people that Callie had wrangled up, and he directly refused. Callie threatened to take it to the court-martial when they got back, but Stanley said that he didn't care. He says, let let him take me to the marshal if he can even get away with this. Stanley says he didn't want to kill these people and didn't see it as worth anything that he might face as a consequence. So there were 125 people plus helicopter pilots and eventually... One of these helicopter pilots, Warrant Officer Hugh Thompson, goes to refuel his helicopter. And when he comes back, he sees tons of bodies. He's looking over and he sees movement in a ditch and decides to, with his crew, decides to land and look through the bodies to find where this movement is coming from. They see a three- or four-year-old boy who's later discovered to be a girl and didn't see any bullet wounds or scratches on this child. And Thompson immediately thinks of his three-year-old son back home. And they take this little girl to the hospital, and then they come back, and after seeing all of the damage that was being done... To these innocent civilians, they, Thompson, decides to land his helicopter between the soldiers and the rest of the villagers. So, he directly, he talks to Callie and he threatens to open fire if these soldiers continue their attacks. And then the soldiers stop, i think they really take a chance to realize what has happened. They quit firing, they quit killing, they quit raping. And then Thompson and his crew, and i don't know if other helicopters pilot other helicopter pilots did this as well, but Thompson and his crew flew dozens of survivors to hospitals to receive medical care. So By the time this massacre ended, 504 people were dead. There were 182 women, 17 of which were pregnant, and 173 children, including 56 infants. And this all occurred in four hours. So we're going. All right. So. After this massacre, Thompson goes back to base and reports this atrocity. And his colonel, Orrin Henderson, who's the commander of the 11th Infantry Brigade, looks through it and concludes that 20 civilians were accidentally killed at Milai. Thompson's report is false, and overall, Milai was this resounding success. And then Thompson begins being assigned dangerous missions, and these missions have inadequate air cover. He gets shot down five times, and the final time, he breaks his back. He also, when he returned to the United States, received death threats, but in 1998, after... A little bit after this occurred, I believe it's 30 years, Thompson and two members of his crew received the Soldier's Medal, and then Thompson died in 2006 at age 62 after a fight with cancer. So, like I said at the very beginning of the show, this is well known, this massacre, especially by older members of our society and it had to come to the forefront somehow right because we had henderson colonel henderson saying that it was false so who brought it to the attention of the u.s a 21 year old helicopter door gunner named ron Reidenhauer, and he wasn't there But he hears about this and immediately questions it, becoming concerned about what transpired. So he eventually writes a letter, and in that letter he says, Somehow, I just couldn't believe that not only had so many young American men participated in such an act of barbarism, but that their officers had ordered it. So he starts an informal investigation, working independently while he's still in Vietnam and begins gathering eyewitness testimony. He returns to the U.S. and once he is separated from the army, he mails a report of everything he's found to multiple people. He mails it to President Nixon, the Pentagon, the State Department, the Defense Secretary, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And several congressmen including his own and he mails this on march 29th 1969 one year and 13 days later and he waited this long because he wanted to make sure he was out of the service because he feared for his life and if you like i just said thompson was assigned very dangerous missions with no air cover, he gets shot down, he breaks his back, so it seems like that was a very valid, genuine concern for Reidenhauer. So, in this letter, the last paragraph I will read to you, because it's Written very well, and Reidenhauer actually eventually becomes an investigative journalist. He wins awards. He wrote a paper titled My Nazi- Nazism. I'm uh, sorry, I don't remember what it's called. Something about Nazism in Milai, comparing the Milai massacre to Nazism that occurred about 20 years before. So his letter is well written, and the last paragraph says, quote, I remain irrevocably persuaded that if you and I do truly believe in the principles of justice and the equality of every man, however humble, before the law, that form the very backbone this country is founded on, then we must press forward a widespread and public investigation of this matter with all our combined efforts. I think that it was Winston Churchill who once said, A country without a conscience is a country without a soul, and a country without a soul is a country that cannot survive. I feel that I must take some positive action in this matter. I hope that you will launch an investigation immediately and keep me informed of your progress. If you cannot, then I don't know what other course of action to take. This letter is, I believe, 1,500 approximately words, about three pages, you can read it online if you want to read the rest of it. It's, as I said, pretty good. He's definitely a good writer. And this sparks inve- official investigations of the massacre, even though he never heard back a response. But it does spark in- official investigations of the massacre and of the cover-up. And, but the Army has a two-year statute of limitations. So, Lieutenant General William Pierce launches an investigation of the cover-up on November 26th, 1969, and thus only had four months to complete the investigation before the statute of limitations was up. He submits his report about the cover-up on March 14th at every level from company to division, and actions were taken or omitted, which together effectively concealed from higher headquarters the events which transpired oh sorry that was a quote at every command level from company to division actions were taken or omitted which together effectively concealed from higher headquarters the events which transpired that's in his report and he also directly signals out 30 people in this letter that was or in this report sorry that was submitted two days before the statute of limitations was over So, the criminal investigation doesn't really, isn't actually public like Reidenhauer suggested, and it's not until he brings up this massacre and his desire for an investigation in an interview that the government charges 14 officers. Thirteen were acquitted. Lieutenant Cali was given a life sentence in March 1971, but some people believe he was just a scapegoat. He ended up being paroled in 1974 after his sentence was reduced upon appeal from life to 20 years to 10, and then he was paroled after three. So when this massacre became Public knowledge, it really exacerbated anti war sentiment. It increased bitterness regarding the U.S. military presence in Vietnam. It was very, very hotly protested, especially because at this point the U.S. had been involved for nearly 15 years. And a lot of people in the United States didn't really see anything was happening. They just saw people being killed and no progress being made, the U.S. spending money, the U.S. Uh, losing lives. And so it was very protested in the U.S. So when this became public knowledge in 1969, 1970, it really, really exacerbated this, these protests, this anti-war sentiment. So before I close out this first story, I want to play you a little clip of a soldier, and I believe a survivor, uh, talking about these events. Oh, it hurts me thinking about the innocent people that got killed. It hurts me now. This is John Smale, squad oh, it hurts leader. me now more than it did then. Because at then you're thinking about living. You get out and you're severe and you think about dying. It's been a while. Now I can sleep. But every once in a while, I dream again about how my father died, how my sister died, how they died next to me. I saw it all. I remember all the time. A good- Go back and remember those all those sleepless nights that we had. Everything that went on. My life, all the people that were killed there. Every day I try to I'd try to make it easy. I thought that by drinking that i I could make it easy and make it go away. I'd lay down at night and it's still the same thing, whether I drank or whether I didn't drink it, still the same thing. Just the memories kept it kept coming back. Kept coming back. I will never forget. When I'm reminded, I suddenly remember the pain. A chapter in the book opens. there is no way I will ever forget all right so that's pretty much the end of the me story everything that I've prepared and going to go to a, another quick break and then tell you about the second event that I have the one that is much much less known by the public so, before I do that quick break, just want to tell you the weather. It is 25 degrees outside as of 11 a.m. I don't know if it has increased in temperature in the last 30 minutes, but it is 25 degrees outside, negative 4 degrees Celsius, and there's a wind speed of about 3 miles per hour, humidity of 81. And the high for the day is 32. We are stepping back in time a little bit to the Korean War. And the Korean War began on June 25th, 1950, when communist North Korea invaded South Korea with six army divisions. And this invasion happened because of a division similar somewhat to what happened in vietnam though obviously different contenders different factors leading up to it but basically there was it was one country divided into two leaderships one which was communist and so then the communist northern korea invades the south and that was on june 25th and the u.s Uh, goes in as well so july 26th one month and one day after the war was declared the u.s eighth army ordered all korean civilians traveling and moving around the country to be stopped and they feared that north korean soldiers dressed in civilian clothes were making themselves look like refugees so they say okay that's it Anyone, any Korean civilian moving and traveling needs to be stopped. So, the villagers of ordered were ordered by the U.S. Army to vacate their village on July 23rd. And they were told that there might be combat in the village. So, they didn't really move. They weren't quite sure exactly what to expect. I don't know. Perhaps they didn't want to leave things behind. They, There could have been a lot of reasons they didn't move. Um, could have just been untrusting of U.S. soldiers. So the U.S. soldiers order them again to move south on July 25th. This time they decide, okay, let's go, and they begin walking. And they are accompanied, these 500 villagers, by U.S. troops from the 7th Cavalry Regiment. They spend the night of July 25th in Hagiri and arrived in Nogunri the morning of July 26th. And Nogunri is about four miles away from the front line of North Korea. And according to an account of someone who was a small boy and took part of this, he had seen some people be killed along the way by these U.S. soldiers, but for the most part, they were not concerned or they were too concerned about what would happen if they stay or stood up, and they just continued going with these soldiers because they were walking to their safety, they were told. So these refugees continue walking with the Americans, and they enter an underpass. And as they get close to this underpass of a bridge, the American soldiers order them to get off the road and onto a railroad track. And this railroad track runs parallel to the road. So now the soldiers begin checking their belongings. And this man named Chung Shik, who is now 61 years old, and a vineyard farmer was 15 years old then and his account says quote all that the refugees had with them were blankets and rice we thought inspecting this was not a big deal but all of a sudden a soldier with a communications radio on his back transmitted something to somewhere and stopped the inspection and hurried away from us We were all wondering why they were acting this way when all of a sudden we saw a fighter jet plane fly over us and drop a bomb. When I woke up from the blast, there was something hanging over my back. And again, if this might be too gruesome, if it's a trigger for you, just tune out for about... mm, It's going to be gruesome for a little bit, actually. I tune out for until 1145. So back to the quote, he something over his back. quote I reached back to see what it was. I find that it was the cut-off head of a boy. The railway was bent as if steel chopsticks were bent by a person, and everything was in chaos. Dead people, dead cows were laid here and there. The bombing lasted for over twenty minutes. Later on, machine guns were also fired Unquote. so After this bombing, the soldiers tell the refugees to move under the underpasses and line them up under the underpasses and begin opening fire on them with machine guns. There's no hostile fire from the refugees. The refugees don't even have any weapons on them. They just checked all their belongings. But they were told fire on everything, kill them all, these soldiers were. An ex-GI named Herman Patterson says, quote, It was just wholesale slaughter. So these people were shot as they tried to escape during the night, or as they looked for clean water to drink. The stream begins to run red with blood. And another quote from a survivor named Yang He chan says, Quote, the floor under the bridge was a mixture of gravel and sand. People clawed with their bare hands to make holes to hide in. Other people piled up the dead like a barricade and hid behind the bodies as a shield against the bullets. And then 7th Cavalry veteran Joe Jackman says, there was a lieutenant screaming like a madman, fire on everything, kill them all. I didn't know if they were soldiers or what kids there was kids out there it didn't matter what it was eight to eighty blind crippled or crazy they shot them all Unquote. One woman according to witnesses gave birth to a baby on the second day and it was under the bridge but she and her husband had to leave their newborn behind because having a baby would put all three of them more at risk of being killed. On the fourth day, the Americans came closer to the bridge to kill everyone still alive, which was mostly just women and children because the men had either been killed or escaped. Half of the 100 people alive were killed by these close range shots and everyone else just died from shock and dehydration. Overall, the no-gun re-massacre lasted for four days and three nights. No one knows for sure, but the estimated death count is somewhere between two to three hundred and four hundred, but some do claim that five hundred were killed. The case was not reported to appropriate authorities. in fact, it was largely unreported, which is why it did receive so much less attention and is less known than the Milai massacre. so there were compensation claims sent by I believe people from Korea to the US claims office in Seoul on October in October 1960 but this was dismissed because of insufficient evidence and because of the statute of limitations because it was 4 or 5 years later there was An apology request and compensation sent to the U.S. government in December of 1960, in July of 1994, in October of 1994, all with no answer. There were complaints sent to President Clinton in July 1994 and October 1994, and he didn't answer. Complaints sent to President Kim Jong-sam in July 1994 and October 1994, and these were transferred to U.S. Forces Claims Office. And they said that, quote, does not assume the responsibility in the case of damages caused by the combatant activities against the enemy, unquote. In 1997, a claim signed by South Korean D, and this claim blamed the 1st Cavalry, it was actually the 7th Cavalry, so U.S. Armed Forces claimed that there was no evidence to show that the U.S. 1st Cavalry Division was in the area. In April 1998, National Panel rejects the case because of the five-year statute of limitations. And as of 2000, they were planning to file a petition with the United Nations Human Rights Committee seeking remedies and seeking remedies directly in U.S. courts. So... There were other incidents, none as significant, large scale as this one, but that did also occur in Korea. And an article from the BBC says quote, New allegations have also emerged of the indiscriminate killing of civilians in Korea. In August 1950, 80 civilians are reported to have been killed while seeking sanctuary in a shrine by the village of Kokonri near Masan in South Korea. Other survivors recall 400 civilians killed by U.S. naval artillery on the beaches near the port of Pohong in September 1950, and dozens of villages across southern South Korea report the repeated low-level strafing by U.S. planes of people in white during July and August 1950. A total of 61 separate incidents involving the killing of civilians by U.S. forces are now logged with the South Korean authorities. So, the war ends on July 27th of 1953, after only three years, after Eisenhower signed an armistice with the two leaders of Vietnam, or sorry, of Korea, and this is obviously much shorter than the 20 years the U.S. spent in Vietnam, so that's the No Ri Massacre, that's what occurred. In July of 1950. So the third and final break is coming up right now with just a quick little conclusion to follow. Even though the Korean War is over, the Vietnam War is mostly over, incidents like these continue to go unreported. And this is partly because of the United States military having a separate system for dealing with events like this. They have their own marshals, their own courts. But even still, a lot of incidents do go unreported. It is at, during times of war or severe conflict. But with wars such as the Gulf War, In the 90s, the Iraq War, as well as military conflict where the U.S. was involved in Afghanistan, Kosovo, Bosnia, Granada, and more. It is extremely likely that more of these events do exist, but we just don't know about them. However, these are two of probably the most gruesome, deadly attacks inflicted by the U.S. military In the last century, I would say, there are a lot of other things I could go on about in the 18th, 19th centuries that were pretty, pretty awful. Mass genocide of Native Americans, indigenous peoples, U.S. Anyway, of the last century, these are two extremely gruesome attacks, but... It is very important to know about them. Like I said, it is hard to know about them because they are unreported. They are kept within military ranks. However, those that are reported don't often come to public attention. Milai is an exception largely because of the work of Ron Reidenhauer, who did repeatedly send that letter to multiple people within the government. However, I mean, I there's a whole paragraph about the all the different complaints and claims files sent to the U.S., to Korea, and nothing's been done about it. So if just be aware that things like this do happen, U.S. military, and I'm sure other militaries as well especially Western militaries, European militaries, just because of power they do hold over countries through economic systems, through historical power. And it is just important to be aware of this and of all historical events that are largely unreported, that are unknown, which is why this show exists, which is why I aim to give to you history that does go overlooked. So thank you for tuning in. For the next couple of weeks, I, and likely many other shows, will be off air because of wintertime, because school's out, and this is campus radio. But do tune in when you can, see if any shows are here, and I will see you again on December 30th with another episode of History Overlooked. provided by Little Village. Little Village is Iowa City's independent community-supported news and culture publication. Little Village's event calendar connects readers with critical cultural opportunities through journalism, essays, and events. Little Village works to improve our community according to core values: affordability and access, economic and labor justice, environmental sustainability, racial justice, gender equity, quality healthcare, quality education, and critical culture. Little Village can be found in print editions at local businesses in Iowa City as well as online at littlevillagemag.com.